I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Notable. Hello and welcome again to another edition of Notable. Yes, hello. Midway through the second season, series, and going strong, yeah. Yeah, we're going strong, but we are back in our respective homes after our sensational yeah, afternoon that's in Skipton. Right. Thank you if yeah. you downloaded and subscribed to last week's podcast in Skipton. Yeah, and hello to the people who came. Hello, yes. Our most cherished fans now. <laughs> yeah, part of the Hinterlands Festival, and it's obviously still available as are all previous editions of Notable. Notable with me and Elizabeth Olker and producer Jeff is our story-swapping podcast about interesting stuff from the world of music, isn't it? It is, yeah, from uh, the yes, last five, six hundred years of music. Yeah, we should try and find a 600-year-old story soon. We have delved back with uh, Jesualdo and Magic. Yeah, we have. We? We and also, to... today, I'm doing Cecil Sharp, and actually some of the things that he collected and found are hundreds of years old. So we'll yeah. see how far back that so, goes. So, as hinted at there, Elizabeth, in, uh, in a little while, is going to be leading a bit of a chat about Cecil Sharp. Mm. Did Is he the man who invented what we call folk well, music? Well, is he? Mm. That's the question. Is he? Hero, Hero or villain? Exactly, yeah. We'll come back to him, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about one of my favourite jazz musicians who lived an unusual life and died in very unusual mm. circumstances, the great Albert Isler. Um, have you ever heard of a programme called On The Wire on BBC Radio I Lancashire? have, yes. In fact, I've met the presenter because I used to have a show on Radio Lancashire. Well, I didn't have a show. I used to stand in on their late show. And he would be kicking around yes, sometimes. Also, that show is a favourite of Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. Because he was a student in Manchester and he used to listen. He's amazing, isn't he? It, you, it's an amazing show. It introduced me when I was a, on the dole and a student teacher and stuff in Wigan. It used to Sunday afternoons and he played amazing dub reggae and, and world music and a lot of jazz. And occasionally they'd play music by this guy called Albert Isler that would blow my mind. I love Albert Isler. For copyright reasons, we can't play his music now. But obviously, when this show is finished, when you finish listening to this podcast, go and listen to some. With the proviso, it sounds like nobody else's music really on earth. It's wild. It's it's passionate. It's primal. I, I love it. And I think you might love it too, but I won't lead the witness in that. Who is he then? He's, um, he's born in Cleveland uh, in 1936, a deeply religious family. He um, is wedded li- almost literally to his saxophone from being a little kid. One of his early girlfriends says that she said that uh, his saxophone was his real first girlfriend and he would play hours a day and would play this kind of crazy music even as a teenager he would play this sort of crazy music. 
that would have his his mother apparently uh, uh, banging on the on the ceiling saying you're not my child no child of mine would play this crazy music um he he joins the army and plays in army bands and he uh, develops his technique but he's really interested in making music that will be further out there and more adventurous than all the music he's hearing he's into jazz and he's into blues but he really wants to develop his own his own sound um, entirely uh, and um, he does this a bit in the army then when he comes back he tries to make a living as a musician in the states and in the documentary that you can see a documentary about him uh, called my name is Albert Isler from 2005 and in the great documentary where the, the maker of that documentary is, is traveling in the car with his dad who's still alive Albert Isler died very young as we'll come on to but his dad is still alive and he sees a picture of Albert as a young man playing the sax and says oh that's a lovely picture and, and, and the documentary maker says you should, they should be a statue of that picture and his dad says well uh, there aren't many statues or there weren't many statues to black musicians in America at the time which is one of the reasons Albert Eiler goes to Europe. Well, it goes to Sweden. So he goes to Scandinavia. Yeah. He goes to Sweden, you're right, which has always been receptive to new music and yeah. new ideas, like all of Scandinavia, and starts to get a bit of work there uh, because they're, they're quite liberal and receptive to black people and jazz yeah. music, music And, and also there, there is an experimental jazz scene in Sweden to this day sure. still, isn't there? You know, that people sure. may not know about, but it's, it's internationally yeah. renowned, isn't it? Sure thing, yeah. And he, he he picks up some work at Don Pedro's restaurant in Sweden where he plays for, like, diners, upscale diners, and they want to hear kind of calypso and tuneful jazz. And Albert will do this, <laughs> but every now and again he'll freak out, and this will put people off their um, smorgasbord or roll mop herrings. <laughs> I was going to say, imagine if you just go in for a burrito and then you're getting some really, like, the most extreme free jazz you could possibly ask for. Exactly. So he doesn't, he doesn't, but he's, they're still very receptive and he still, he still sort of gets gigs around Sweden. He goes to a restaurant called the Golden Circle Restaurant, which is a bit more cool jazz and avant-garde jazz. And in this place, he falls in with a dude called Cecil Taylor, who you will know if you like modern free jazz. Again, very far out pianist. Says to Cecil's band, I want to play with you. And they go, well, who are you? And he gets up and blows this racket. And um, two of the people in the uh, Cecil Taylor trio Gary Peacock and Sonny Murray become long-standing musical allies of Albert Island. They've never heard this music before. He's a really interesting dude as well, apparently. He's, he's good-looking, he's very softly spoken, he's quite charismatic, and he wears these, he's got these three leather suits that he interchanges, a grey leather suit, a green leather suit. So he cuts something wow, of a dash. a leather suit. He gets a Swedish girlfriend. Yeah, and, and, and I think things go, things go well for a while, uh, and then he relocates because he's heard that where the music scene is really happening is New York. So he relocates um, to New York, and there he gets gigs around town. I should say, in Sweden, he did record an early album that he wasn't very satisfied with, with a Swedish label. But he comes to New York, John Coltrane gets to hear him, and basically John Coltrane promotes his music a lot. You know, whenever he's asked who's the hot new sax players in town, he always mentions Albert Eiler. And he's doing a lot of shows, uh, but it doesn't pay. You know, free jazz might have been cool. Well, let's let's pause a moment there. It is free jazz, but Albert Eiler's music is so many different things put yeah. together. It's a bit. It's a bit spiritual, isn't it? It's a bit church music, gospel. And and was it? It was all about the sound, wasn't it? It was all about the timbre rather than any yes. kind of structure, any kind of structure at all. So even timing, harmony, yeah, all those things were just out the window. It was exactly. kind of all about the emotion in the sound. And it's a shame. But he he was all. It's almost like he 
um, he was just like lost in a moment of time because audiences hadn't quite processed what had just come immediately That's before. Right. And then they'd moved on to the next thing before they'd really t- had chance to kind of absorb what he was doing or process what he was doing. That's absolutely right. And he's dragging in stuff from New Orleans marching band music and he's dragging in stuff from gospel music. And and you, if you listen to his music, you will hear these beautiful, emotionally charged vibrato passages of melody, like old spiritual songs, yeah. and then it will freak out into something crazy. So he's getting a lot of kind of kudos, and the cool kids are coming to see him and the, the opinion formers, but it's not selling a great many records. Although he does record an album, one guy comes along to see him, and, and it, it's almost a pod in itself, ESP Disc, which is a new label set up for avant-garde jazz, and the owner of that says, I want to put out an album of yours, and it's the first album on ESP Disc, and it's called Spiritual Unity, and it still sounds amazing. As I said, but he's not paying the rent. He's in quite dire uh, poverty at the time. Flits backwards and forwards back to his hometown in Cleveland, but eventually he goes back to Europe. He makes a single appearance uh, on the BBC. We'll come back to that on Jazz 625, the leading jazz program. But if you look if you look around on YouTube and stuff like that, you'll find a performance he does in Germany at the time where he's treated like a god. I mean, there's this small but hugely appreciative audience in what looks like a big sports hall or something. People who really get this music. And, and Al Isla always said the Europeans so far ahead of the Americans in the jazz that they'd listen to and what they'd accept as jazz. Also, he would get really upset, wouldn't he, when people didn't respond to him well, which I always find surprising with musicians who have been really experimental. I mean, I don't know yeah. I don't know why, you know, everyone's entitled to do their thing, but, you know, you'd think, well, this sure. is kind of quite out there. I know. <laughs> what did you expect? Yeah. But, no, it did really affect him personally, didn't it? Oh, it made him really angry, yeah. Apparently yeah. the guy who he drummed with at this Don Pedro supper club where it, they didn't dig him in Sweden... He said, they don't understand me now. No one understands my music. But one day, these will pay to understand me. And when he goes back to Europe in 66, where all the cool people are understanding him and paying top dollar for a ticket, he says, now they're paying to understand me. One of the people who gets him in the mid-60s is Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney's a a big fan. I I know I always bang on about this, but Macca, the cool radical Beatle, He's into free jazz, he's into yeah, electronic he's music, and, he, and he's apparently a big fan of yeah. Albert Isler. I think in his little, um, in his famous flat upstairs in Jane Asher's house, in his room in Jane Asher's house, like the albums he had lying around, he'd have like Stockhausen and Albert Isler and yeah. people like that. So he's still not selling many records, but two things happened that kind of changed his fortunes a bit. He, having had a, several relationships and been married and had a daughter, he, he meets a, a fellow musician called Mary Parks, or Mary Marie, as she's known professionally, who sort of takes him under her wing and sorts him out, becomes a sort of manager, a wife, musical collaborator. And you can tell some of the musicians around him felt was beginning to cut him off from the world. You know, it's a, it's a story we hear a lot about fragile musicians, isn't it? Eugene Landy and Brian Wilson, all that yeah, kind of yeah. thing. It may just be sexism, I don't know, but he gives interviews in which he says, oh, she sorted me out, I'm cool now, I'm, I'm fine, I can sleep, I can eat. And another big thing that happens is Coltrane manages to persuade Bob Thiel, who runs a label called ABC Impulse, to sign him. Um, and basically what Coltrane said went to ABC. And so he puts out some great records for ABC Impulse at the time, some of his classic recordings, Love Cry and things like this. Do you think that's perhaps one of the most important things that he did, influencing Coltrane? Because he did get Coltrane yes. to kind of reassess his own work, didn't he? Because what Albert Eilert was doing was so 
sophisticated and conceptual and um, radical and Absolutely. Coltrane said, apparently, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to sound like you. And Albert Eiler said, no, you're not. He said, you're starting to feel the same things I right. feel. And it's coming out like that. Um, you're starting to want the same things from music to express this inner spiritual truth. Okay. You know? um, Coltrane dies very suddenly. Well, not suddenly, but he dies very young of, of liver cancer. One of his last requests is that Ornette Coleman and Albert Isler play at his funeral. And if you look, there's no film footage, but there's still footage of this. If you look at this thing, you can hear the recording and look at this footage of Isler in a white suit on the balcony above Coltrane's coffin playing this insane music. I think, well, insane is the wrong word. Wild yeah, music, yeah. I should say. There's not insane about it. He plays um, Truth is Marching In and Love Cry, which are two of his classics of the time, later to be recorded on ABC Impulse. And it's an extraordinary, extraordinary moment. Um, trouble, though, in his personal life. He doesn't always have the best relationships with Mary Marie. Uh, his brother, who's also in the band. Now, his brother Donald is also in his band. And um, I think it's fair to say that brother Donny was an unstable character. He himself says he was psychotic at the time. And he was never really in Albert's level of greatness. But he was a good sideman. But Donny's pr- pr- proving a bit of a liability. He's constantly flitting backwards and forwards to Cleveland and his mother and father's house and... You know, some people want will say to Albert, we'll book you, but we don't want Donnie, that kind of thing, because he's become a bit of a liability. And this strange period begins in Albert's life. He becomes increasingly isolated from other people. He makes two albums that Albert Island devotees really don't like, or at least one called New Grass, where he sings and there's this quasi-hippie philosophy and Mary Marie sings a bit, and people just think he's gone a little bit soft and odd. People say that he, they see him wandering around Greenwich Village or Brooklyn in, in like an overcoat and fur gloves in the middle of summer with his face covered in Vaseline. Right. He starts to tell people that he's looking at the sun for hours on end. He's got into Egyptian, there's a track called Sun Watcher. He says that he's got into Egyptian sun worship and, you know, and, and he can see things in the sun. He's, he's developing all these strange ideas playing sometimes for nothing in the park with Marie. And then in July 1970, after a bit of an argument at their apartment, he disappears. He, he leaves, he walks out of the apartment in New York. And three weeks later, his body is found floating in the East River. And he's only 34 and years old, isn't he? 34, yeah, 34, yeah. I know, and, and all kinds of weird and lurid rumours have grown up about what might have been the reason here. Um... Some people say that the FBI assassinated him because they were hunting down and getting rid of leading black musicians and artists and black power figures at the time. The reason I don't think that's true is because conspiracies always say this rubbish. It's like Jim Morrison, yeah. the man bumped him off. Why? Just because he had his leather trousers? I don't think so. The man's got more important things to worry about, really, yeah. hasn't he? He wasn't hugely culturally significant either, in, you know, in terms of the mainstream, no. was he? You know, that he was impacted, that everyone he, was walking around... Greenwich Village with fur coats looking at the sun. You know, it wasn't like he'd That's right. spawned a cult that, or anything exactly. like that, was it? A leather suit wearing cult. Exactly. And also, in his interviews at the time, he's at pains to distance himself, really, with, with a lot of the Black Power stuff. He says that his music is the beauty that will come after the apocalypse sort of thing, after we've sorted out on all the differences. But he isn't. He says, my music's not about protest. It's about truth and beauty. So he's not really a politically active guy at all, in the same way that Coltrane wasn't. The most lurid of the rumours is that the mafia, who wanted him to record more regular records for ABC Impulse, like the, the, the Newgrass record, and he wouldn't do, 
drowned him, tied him to a jukebox and it's flung him box. in the East River, which I think is we can pretty much say is not true. But what we do know is that that's what he did. He threw himself, or someone threw himself in the East River. Reports seem to suggest that he threw himself in by the Statue of Liberty, which is interesting. I wonder if there's any significance right. there, that, you know, the Statue of Liberty, I don't know, like freedom, free jazzy, you can speculate. But anyway, he died extremely young and has left behind this music that still will it'll never be a big seller, but generations of new people that I did listening to on the wire will go, what is this music? You know, and it will really yeah, yeah. sort of yep. extends the range of what is possible. And it's kind of joyous music. And, and again, one of the one of those many talents who had kind of taken from us too soon, but maybe his story should be better known. Absolutely. And like you say, just pushing people who are in the mainstream in, you know, a little bit further into more interesting territory. The notable exception for this week, I almost mentioned it there. I should have kept my, should have kept my mouth shut. He did record one session mm-hmm. for the BBC for the influential Jazz 625 programme in the mid-1960s, black and white. But like so many other things, such as, See Emily play being performed by the Pink Floyd on top of the Pops, and like some classic Dad's Armies, the BBC wiped them. Yeah, it's not for us to criticise the brilliant organisation that no, is the no, BBC. No. I mean, but who was in charge of wiping stuff? That'd be good to know, wouldn't it? Um, there's plenty of projects that I've been involved in that that they can happily wipe. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about Albert Isla, which would perhaps make a nice, notable exception, is that he was a golf champion, wasn't he? Which is really weird at the time because African-Americans weren't allowed to be members of golf clubs. This is news to me, but I've just looked, and you're apparently absolutely right. He was a junior golf champion, and we don't know whether it was the US Open or the Junior Free Jazz Pitch and Put yeah. Championships, which only had him and Ornette Coleman and John Coltrane in it. But that's, that's amazing. That Crazy is- golf. Yeah, crazy, crazy. It's amazing golf. because black people would have struggled to get on a course at the time. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. And also, it's Steve Barker, isn't it, who presents on the wire? That you know, that's right. Steve Barker, Steve Barker, the yeah. presenter of on the wire. Yeah, yeah. And if you're listening, Steve, yeah. um, he's um, doesn't he? I think he lives in Japan, doesn't he, or uh, somewhere like that? Yeah. Anyway, legend. Sorry, Jeff. What were you going to say? Elizabeth, I'm just putting my finger to my mm. earpiece and where I'm hearing that there's another notable exception as a bonus extra okay. this week, that the only person of the three of us involved in this podcast to be interviewed by On The Wise Steve Parker is producer yeah. Jeff, who was in a band called The Dandelion Adventure. Maybe a, maybe a future notable. <laughs> Whatever happened to The Dandelion Adventure? Absolutely. <laughs> if we can persuade him to tell us. Well, I don't know if you just heard Jeff there saying 1988. <laughs> but I presumably wiped, like so many other things at the BBC. <laughs> yeah. Well, like all the legendary footage. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, Albert Isla, Pink Floyd, Dad's Army, The Dandelion Adventure. <laughs> we played at Blackpool for an hour and a half without ever rehearsing or anything before we got booed off the stage. <laughs> and then a while back, we entered a competition by sending in a tape of another band. Well, no. it, you're not supposed to say that. Sorry, sorry. And uh, so we started practicing. Hold on, this, this is this is this is the entrepreneurial spirit well, being this displayed. Is it. Here, yeah, that's it. Oh yeah, made this country grow. We won as well. We, we, won won we got into well. the final. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounded like you did okay playing an hour and a half before you got booed off. At least you got that far. We started booing after a quarter of an hour, but we only listened <laughs> after an hour. And a
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, we mentioned earlier Cecil Taylor, as the Americans say. Cecil instead of Cecil. But here, now, Mm. our second Cecil of the season. Or our second Cecil of the season. That's right. Because you're going to talk about Cecil 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 Sharp. Yes, so this is uh, the story of the folk song collector Cecil Sharp, one of the most high-profile, definitely the most prolific collectors of folk songs and dances uh, in the UK. He was born in 1859, so was working at kind of the turn of the 20th century. He's often celebrated as not just being a really important part of the first folk revival that was happening around that time, but also a massive reason for the second folk revival, or at least a huge kind of contributing factor uh, in the second folk revival in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. So weirdly, he was born on the 22nd of November, as I say, 1859. The 22nd of November is St. Celia's Day, and St. Celia is the patron saint of music. So that's why his parents called him uh, Cecil. And the whole notion of being a saint kind of interesting in Cecil Sharp's life because some people would say, you know, he's almost become a kind of canonised, hasn't he, as this figure, this untouchable hero yeah. of, of folk. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, and I'll come on to in a moment, others strongly disagree with that idea. He was born into a middle-class, merchant-class family. Uh, his father was a slate merchant. He spent his early years, actually, in Australia. He was studying and practising law in Adelaide, While he was there, he became an organist at the cathedral in Adelaide. And then when he returned to the UK, he decided he wanted to spend his whole career in music and he became a music teacher. Uh, He was music master Mm -hmm. at Ludgrove Prep School uh, and principal of Hampstead Conservatory as well. Uh, He took that post up in 1896. But what's interesting about this, so this is the mid to late 1800s. So it's kind of the height of the Industrial Revolution. So cities are expanding at this time. Rural life is diminishing. And with it, you know, the ancient traditions and culture that were intrinsic to rural life. So people are moving away from country. They're going to work in the mills and the factories and the mines in the big cities, becoming disconnected from their families, forced into really difficult conditions, as we we know, in factories, in the slums, in towns like Manchester. Uh, And so alongside this kind of diminishing of rural culture is also a nostalgia for English rural life as well. And people looking back with kind of rose-tinted glasses at their former lives in small hamlets before they moved to these big, horrible, smoky cities. Even though probably, you know, things were possibly not that much better when they were living in the countryside anyway, you know. It's just this kind of nostalgia emerged around it. So all this is in the air, and this is happening all over Europe as well. There's a a drive to preserve folk culture, which is, people believe, 
becoming lost. It's, uh, you know, it's disappearing as people move away from the country. So composers like Bela Bartok, uh, he, he wrote his Hungarian dances, for example, Dvorak and his Slavonic dances, Janacek with his Moravian folk songs, Chopin with his mazurkas, that's just to name a few. So these are like composer, mm. classical composers across Europe who are, who are searching out and recording, notating folk song and then incorporating it into their music. Same was happening here in the UK with people like Vaughan Williams, Arnold Bax, he, he uh, notated a lot of Irish folk song, George Butterworth, a little bit later EJ Moran as well, Moiran, we mm-hmm. all say on Radio 3 that his voice, is, his name is impossible to say, Moran, Moran yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there it is, we've solved that one, Moran, EJ Moran, Moran, yeah. I think Moran. it's just Moran, it's an Irish name, it's yeah, just Moran, yeah. 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 Tell them at Radio 3 that it's just more and take it from me. I used to go to school with people go, well, yeah. So, um, so yeah, they're all doing their own field, field research, collecting folk songs. There's a bit of a, you know, a rush to preserve this culture. Yeah. And Cecil Sharp is working as a music teacher and a composer at this time. So he's kind of, you know, involved in the classical music scene. But there's one pivotal event in 1889, mm. which seems to switch his focus to folk music. So Oxford is where there are some of the, well, some of the earliest forms of Morris dancing originated in Oxford. What's your feelings on Morris dancing, Stuart? <laughs> Just as an aside. Um, I have no strong feelings about it. I quite, I, it's some kind of people who aren't funny often make fun of it, don't they? You know what I mean? Because it's an easy thing to make fun of. Yeah. It's, it doesn't appeal to me particularly. As a <laughs> oh, that surprises I, me. I, I, <laughs> I'm very, I'm very happy for those people who enjoy it to do it. Yeah, I used to. Well, it's it's a big thing where I came from. I don't know if it was big in Wigan because yeah. the north isn't that famous for Morris dancing. But the village that I grew up no, in, we didn't do it in Wigan. Did you not? Because there are loads of Morris troops no. where I grew up, and all the girls in my class at school did Morris dancing, and I wasn't allowed. My mum wanted me to do ballet, which now obviously I'm thankful for, I suppose. But it was a big deal. Just quickly, though, before we move, move off this, there's a different kind of Morris dancing, I think, in some Nankish Lancashire industrial yeah, places. Yeah, it's true, yeah. Girls in my town used to Morris dance, but it was nothing like Morris dance. It was like majorettes. Yeah, it was more processional. It was processional. It was throwing batons in the air. It was nothing like that bloke's waving hanky stuff. Yeah, yeah it was... It's much more American and processional, Absolutely, yeah. completely different. And it grew out of the mines and the factories as well. So it was a bit like the brass bands. They would have Morris yes. troops kind of connected to. That's right, yeah. A bit like cheerleading, almost. Almost like yeah, that. Yeah, but it yeah. did seem a lot more fun than ballet when I was like 10. Anyway, yeah, we digress. Been, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're in Oxford and there's a move to preserve Morris dancing in Oxford at this time. So some key collectors, Percy Manning and Thomas Carter, persuade some of the old Headington dancers in, in Oxford. Apparently that Morris troupe still exists. Right. And the result was a public performance of the Morris, as, it, as they call it, on the 15th of March, 1899 at the Oxford Corn Exchange. The dancers came out, they did their thing, they earned a bit of money, a tradition was revived, everyone was a winner, so they carried on performing. And by chance, that Christmas in 1899, Cecil Sharp was in Oxford, staying with his, uh, his mother-in-law. She lived in Headington, so about, so you know, this area yeah. where this, this revival is happening. And on Boxing Day, he was ill, actually. He was struggling with uh, an eye condition, and he had his eyes kind of yeah. covered. Um, well, shaded. And through the shade... It was all snowy because it was Boxing Day. He saw these men appearing, eight men dressed in white, decorated with, rib- rib- with ribbons, carrying small lantern bells, you know, bells on their shins, coloured sticks, handkerchiefs, and they all start dancing. And he'd never seen this before. Um, the dance is quite 
well known now, it was uh, Loudnam Bunches and Constant Billy. They're two quite famous uh, Morris dance dances. Yeah. So yeah, he was feeling ill. He saw this amazing sight. Apparently, this kind of awakening happened inside him, and he decided he well he rushed out, started to talk to these dancers. They apologised for being out at Christmas because apparently you should be out at Whitson if you're a Morris dancer, but that didn't matter to him. He took the tunes back to London, and this this really kind of changes the course of his career. He starts to work with Mary Neal, who was a really influential figure in dance education at the time, and she used the tunes that he'd notated, and they started to be published for dance education. And this is a lot. This is kind of the start, yeah. really, of what Cecil Sharp did. He moved these folk because he was a teacher. He was involved in education. He moved these kind of folk traditions into the education establishment, so they became popularised yeah. because they were published for teachers to use in schools. So, of course, yeah. kids everywhere were, you know, learning these dances and, and eventually the songs that he, that he collected as well. So, Maurice Dancing, he forms the English Folk Song Society. He yeah. works with, with Mary Neal. And they start to even have uh, grade levels for Maurice Dancing. Uh, then he starts collecting folk songs as well, uh, inspired by this moment. Yeah, we should say that a pivot, there's another pivotal moment about song. He hears a gardener in 1903 singing the famous old folks on the seeds of love, yeah, doesn't he? That's true, yeah. And that, that's a pivotal yeah, moment as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. He's visiting a friend in Somerset. And I mean, the romantic yeah. version of this tale is that he would go around these sort of little hamlets in this like English rural idyll asking uh, washerwomen and farm labourers to sing for him and then he would notate the music and then make piano versions to be sung in school and you know lots of the songs like we, like yeah. the one you mentioned Holly and the Ivy as well Lily of the West Flowers mm -hmm. of Edinburgh that the piano versions of those songs are still available for teachers to play with kids we sung some of those yeah. when we were at school as well yeah he collected nearly 3,000 songs from England which is a lot of Wow. old women yeah. singing for you 350 actually yeah. musicians he collected them for then the first world war happens mm. and he's too old for service so he goes to the appalachian mountains uh he visits yeah. north carolina virginia tennessee west virginia kentucky he collects over 1600 tunes there so we're up to like 4600 yeah. tunes by now that he's notated uh, it results in the publication of two volumes of music from the Appalachian Mountains. His health was not good. So, you know, this is all a bit of a kind of folk odyssey. He formed lifelong connections with many of the residents out there. And he went with his sister, Maud Carples, who became his biographer. And in yeah. the folk community, there's a bit, you know, there is some raised eyebrows about this. Assistant seems to be a catch-all title for whatever their relationship might have actually yes. been. Who am I to speculate? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but she wrote this very kind of... Um, she wrote a biography of him, which is the reason that he is now, or for a long time, was an untouchable icon. Yeah. She wrote this like hagiography on Absolutely. him, didn't she? Saying that he was... An, how amazing he was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, yeah, that, yes, yeah, so on which his reputation and the, and the hard work he did largely yeah. rests. But as we're saying, he's a bit problematic. He is, isn't yeah. He? So there's uh, more recently been a lot more kind of critical analysis of him. He's he's believed to be in the person who, um, 
you know, well, he recorded this dying part of British folk history, but this was yeah. all very much his take on the whole thing. Um, he was first yeah. start, he was, you know, he was middle class, he was Oxbridge, Oxbridge educated. So he's been accused more recently of kind of appropriating this music for his own means, for, you know, um, his own career and financial gain. Well, he copyrighted yeah. a lot of it. He copyrighted several of these traditional tunes under his yeah, own yeah, name. Absolutely. Yeah. He only popularised certain types of songs and dances. So, you know, other more, other kind of That's regional right. styles then died out, particularly with Morris dancing. I think certain kind of regional uh, styles of Morris dancing died out and his were, became the more popular ones. He was unpopular with a lot of women involved in the folk movement at that time. Lucy Broadwood, she was a very influential folk collector as well. She said he puffed and boomed and shoved and ousted and used the press to advertise himself. Uh, he's widely yeah. believed to have been a critic of the suffrage movement. He was a socialist as well, though. Yes. So, you know, just very conflicted character. Well, he described himself as a conservative socialist yeah. and he also was involved with the Liberals. So his politics are a bit mixed up, apparently, to say the least. Absolutely. Go on, sorry. He, he, said that the, he said that peasants, the rural labouring classes, were the native and Aboriginal inhabitants of England who had benefited from no formal training whatsoever. Basically, he said that the best and purest state for these people to be in was uneducated, which is rankles rather with me because yeah. that's very easy for an educated person to say. Absolutely. And also a person who's taking their work and then using it for music education. <laughs> I mean, there's so much you know, yeah. wrong with that, isn't there? Yes, he, so he, he had a very idealised slightly weird I mean there were a lot of weird ideas going around I'm not weird but big ideas going around like Darwin and Marx but he thought the English peasant in its uneducated state was the most noble and pure of creatures sort of thing and he thought he was supposed to state schooling because he thought that would fill their minds with nonsense yeah and he was very he when later a folk tradition a folk tradition occurs from industry like where we're from he said no that's not proper folk music so there's no folk music coming out of the mines or the factories yeah. it's only farmers only rural agricultural workers are the proper folk if you like of England and that's the only folk music and that's upset so, a lot of people who uh, broadside enthusiasts because obviously broadsides were songs that were sung in urban areas weren't they they were yeah. they were kind of the news uh, the newspaper, the headlines of the day, weren't they? But people sung them around the slums. So, yeah, there's a lot of broadside enthusiasts that are upset by Cecil Sharp. I think this is really interesting because folk purists like to say, oh, folk is a pure tradition, unlike the inauthenticity of rock and pop, which is all invented yeah. for show business reasons. Folk is pure. There's no such thing as a pure album. Yeah. Cecil Sharp proves this. What we have, a lot of the folk music we have today is Cecil Sharp's idea of folk Absolutely. music, but it was for a while. Yeah. And, and that it's leads, rural. I think, to these weird situations. And was rural. But the thing, the example I always quote to people who, who mock pop music's sort of inauthenticity is, okay, folk music, whether you're from Bolton or from Newcastle or from Dorset, there's a way of singing like this, <laughs> which is just as inauthentic. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just as much a creation, that, a, a, a deliberate artistic creation, yeah. as like the transatlantic accent that people sing in. Because why, I, so people from Oldham should sing like the Oldham Tinkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. But a lot of them do that way of singing. It's a complete affectation. You do it it's really like, well, Stuart. It's like to be Americans. But you know what I mean? People, you, that is as inauthentic as Elton John's southern accent that he sings in. Absolutely. So it's important, I think, to believe that, that 
there's nothing pure in art no. and Cecil Sharp had a very his own definition of it which I think has been challenged a bit as you're saying recently. It is and this is what we were talking about last week with the Wicker Man as well isn't it that actually he sanitised a lot of the traditional folk culture the folk songs because so, these yeah. songs were so yeah. bawdy but he had to publish them for schools right. and during the Victorian times yeah. so he changed the lyrics because the, you know they were too kind of too risque um, also, to have piano yeah. accompaniments to these songs isn't authentic because they would have been sung a cappella. Not at all. So that's another black mark. But it, it's his work collecting songs in America, though, that has made these more recent assessments of, of what he did especially damning because the Appalachians were really racially mixed at that time. You know, it was a really kind of rich cultural, racial landscape. African-American and Native American songs all being performed in these communities, as well as those of Irish and Scottish descent. But he only collected, of 1,600 songs that he notated in the States, he only collected two non-white songs. So he, he had a clear agenda. And he was also, not only that, he was quick once he had found songs with English lyrics to call them English songs of English origin Mm. so even the Irish and the Scots were ticked off by him as well so yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely a problematic figure hard working I mean who's you know who knows what we would have without him well that's the thing we don't want to seem to be kicking him we just we're just addressing his problematic nature these days because for many years he was treated as a secular saint of folk wasn't he he and but we love we love the idea that he did capture music that would otherwise have been lost absolutely would otherwise have been lost and Martin Carthy the great Martin Carthy has a, good, a great line. He says, the only way to damage a folk song... People say to him, oh, you can cover it in the wrong way or whatever. Yeah. He says, the only way to damage a folk song is not to sing yeah. it. <laughs> so the fact, the fact that, the fact that uh, Cecil, or Cecil, um, did preserve <laughs> these songs for future generations is, is brilliant. But I just think it's important that we remember that there's nothing pure about these things. And what Cecil had his own take on folk music and for a long time it was the standard version of folk music. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Martin Carthy has a funny story as well about going to the Cecil Sharp House in the 60s, which, you know, Cecil Sharp House is kind of a monument to his work, isn't it? And and it's home to a lot of the things that he collected and published work. It's the folk grout shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says that they were really snooty towards him because, uh, you know, who was this young upstart? And now look. So it just goes to show, doesn't it? Absolutely. Well, so, but anyway, we, um, we 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 still applaud. Mm. We are off now to do some Morris dancing yeah. of both the <laughs> traditional and Lancashire versions, twirling our batons and flapping our handkerchiefs. Yeah. Pom poms. We had rose queens as well. Did you ha- did you have rose queens, Stuart? Uh, yeah, I think we did. I think we did. Yeah. 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 I always wanted to be a rose queen oh. as well, but was never a rose queen. Oh, no. I know. Well, you're the yeah. rose queen of notable. Notable. <laughs> and on this slightly melancholy note, don't forget, <laughs> tell all your friends, download, subscribe, do all the things you're supposed to do. Yeah. Talk about mm-hmm. us on TikTok or whatever it is you young people yeah. do. <laughs> we could have done a Morris Dancing little TikTok clip. We should definitely what do a TikTok to? Morris Dancing channel. That would go a stop. Producer Jeff shaking his head. I can see producer Jeff shaking his head, yeah. I can't see Jeff. Oh, there he is. <laughs> That's it for this one, and yeah. um, we'll see you next do week. download, subscribe. Mm-hmm. There's tons of them available now. Yeah. And there'll be another one next week. Notable, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.